Please listen carefully. Hello and welcome to episode 82 of the Telling the Story podcast. I am Matt Pearl, author of the Telling the Story blog and a reporter at NBC in Atlanta. This podcast is all about developing your voice as a journalist and developing the skills to harness that voice. I am so excited for the voice coming your way in just a minute, but first, a few requests. Please subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher is the best podcast app I know. It keeps a playlist of your favorite shows and automatically updates with new episodes so you don't have to download them. Just download the Stitcher app and subscribe to the Telling the Story podcast. Second, rate and review this podcast on iTunes. If you like what you're hearing and want others to hear it too, a kind rating in the Apple Podcast app is the best way to boost us in the rankings and search, so I kindly encourage that. Finally, you can buy my book, The Solo Video Journalist, wherever fine books are sold, and now you can buy the second edition. It is a how-to guide for the most in-demand job in local TV news, those who shoot and edit their own stories. We've got all new interviews and updates for the new edition. I'm hearing some really great feedback. So again, that is the Solo Video Journalist 2nd Edition on sale now. Well, if you know me or follow this podcast closely, you know that I am a proud Atlantan. I wasn't born in Atlanta, but I've lived here 11 years, and I've never seen my city or my state get as much attention as it did late last year, and for about a week into this year. First, Georgia played a pivotal role in the presidential election as it flipped blue and in dramatic fashion over several days after Election Day. Then, Georgia had two Senate runoffs that had the potential to flip the Senate, and it did. Reverend Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff defeated incumbents Kelly Leffler and David Perdue, respectively, and the woman I'm about to interview was as up close to many of these candidates as nearly any journalist. She is also an accomplished photojournalist who's going to talk about how to capture the soul of a story in roughly 20 million pixels. She's worked with the New York Times, Washington Post, ESPN, NPR, you know, all the all the lame spots. Lindsay Weatherspoon, welcome to the Telling the Story podcast. Thank you so much, Matt. That was that was a superb introduction. It was just it was nice. I loved it. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And you know, the the best line that I've read in your bio is actually the one that I wanted to ask you about first because I think when I was reading about you, there was one line that really stood out and, and felt like a fitting introduction to how you approach your work. You say that you have been, quote, called on to capture heritage and history in real time. Talk about what that means to you. Yeah, so um, I'm originally from Birmingham, Alabama, and if you are, you know, aware of any type of civil rights history, you know that that's one of the cities that was the epicenter of civil rights. So to be in these spaces, I don't think it was by chance. It was a calling. It was meant for me to be, you know, born in such a place, um, being born in such a time and understanding just, you know, the value of the stories that I heard from family members who lived through you know, Jim Crow era during uh, who marched in some of those civil rights um, marches and things of that nature. So it 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 to be here in Atlanta, it puts like that that cherry on top to know that not only will I be hearing these stories, but it gives me even more pleasure to capture these stories as well, because I know what we've seen over the past two years now, you know, very recent is definitely going down and, you know, going down into history so that's that's where that comes from but that is so cool and i'm curious if that 
I would imagine it has to affect the kinds of assignments that you seek and the kind of assignments that you take. It does to an extent. Um, I, I know that I can photograph, you know, any variant of a story. So it, though I, I pretty much photograph a lot of things that, that deal with, um, black history and anything that's connected to, um, how can I put this? The mobility of, of black people. Yes, that is what I usually photograph, but that doesn't, you know, take away from any other uh, person's story, but I primarily am hired for those types of stories. Now, I, I want to dive deeper into that a little further down in this interview and, and talk about the intention and the, and the, uh, the intention that you bring mm -hmm. to your career. But mm -hmm. I want to start by diving into these past few months and capturing some of that Georgia history and American history mm -hmm. in real time. Um, first thoughts about this past election season and what you experienced. Gosh, um, you know, even <laughs> even before we got to uh, voting day in November, it was it was one that I only thought that I would see on television for a long time. But to be in the midst of it, um, it just really showed me that things honestly didn't change. Um, we're just progressing in how we make it better. But some of those same things that may have happened during the civil rights era just carried on to now. So, you know, being in, being amongst um, protesters, being amongst um, people who pretty much don't approve of folks that look like me as a Black woman, um, it, it just really made things become full circle. Um, it's not like I live in a bubble, but it's one thing to see certain things on TV, but it's another to actually experience it. So something, one of the stories that I photographed was... Um, a protest that was at Stone Mountain. So you had your folks who were on uh, with Black Lives Matter and you also had your staunch um, Confederate folks. So, you know, you have these two wildly different thinking and there's just, you saw some people who were being combative with each other and you also saw some that were trying to teach each other. Teach each other. So it's it's it only just made me realize that there's just so much that we have to do in order for our world to change, whether that's going to be, you know, from a government standpoint or just from a personal standpoint. I'm curious how that factors into your approach as a photojournalist, because, you know, you mm -hmm. had a photo that made the Guardian's list of the top photos of 2020. It yes. is a snapshot of a Black Lives Matter protester in Atlanta Right after, right after the death of George Floyd, when there were nightly protests downtown, mm -hmm. um, her fist is raised. She's in a group, but very much the center of your attention uh, mm -hmm. and your camera's attention. It is a gripping photograph. Take me through, you know, when you're in those environments. And I, I think you said that was your first protest. Uh, so it was. <laughs> take me through when you're in those environments. What are you trying to capture and how does how does your camera enable you to do that? So from a photojournalist perspective, um, my entire goal is to always be neutral um, and to always understand that there are several sides to a story. Now, with that particular um, moment, I covered every side of what was going on. Um, and it everything was gripping. For example, the, the photo that you just mentioned, 
Um, I think the one thing that most people missed out on was that, yes, there was this this protest that was going on, but there was also adjacent to where the activity was happening at the uh, Centennial Park, there was also like a prayer session going on as well. So when we as photojournalists are out there, you know, capturing these moments, we also have to make sure that we're being fair on all sides. Um, and I know that's something that, you know, can get lost in the midst of things. But I, for my goal is always to make sure that I'm being neutral and being honest and putting some dignity into the work that I actually photograph. And when you're out in a situation like that, mm-hmm. are you, is that a case where you are assigned by a news out to, outlet to go cover that? Are you going out there thinking, you know, I'm just going to go out there and get photographs and then, you know, contract with someone or, yeah. you know, ha- what's, what's the process there? Yeah, so that one was just I. I just wanted to go. Quite honestly, no, no one contracted me, and I, I really feel like it was more of a last-minute decision on my end because um, I only told one person that I was going, and that was just to make sure that somebody knew where I was in case something happened. But I, I went out there on my own um, just to pretty much document what the what the day was going to be like, and and then all of a sudden the the storm of assignment requests came in. But no, I, I did not go into that situation looking for work. It was just more so of a personal responsibility. How many photos did you take that day? That day alone, um, I would say roughly uh, maybe 500. I, I shoot less now because I, you know, I know what to look for. But I, I, I did come home with a, a good amount of pictures um, that I than I normally do on any other um, type of assignment. But I came home with a lot. So you came home with hundreds of photos. And mm-hmm. I'm sure among those, there were probably like a few dozen that you were really, you know, passionate about that you were going to work yeah. with and, and send off. How do you then decide, okay, I've covered this event. Mm-hmm. And there are, as you said, many sides to this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you never know what's going to happen once you yeah. offer up a photo out there. So mm-hmm. how do you... How do you operate in terms of who you reach out to and which photos you offer? So I've been working um, as a full-time photographer since 2017. And after you've worked with a lot of editors, you kind of get a grasp as to what type of photos they're looking for. Um, But as I mentioned earlier, I was just going in with the mind of this is just my work, not you know, pushing it towards any editors or anything of that nature. But I kind of know what photos will resonate with people more. So after sifting through the photos, I I just looked at a few and knew that I had a a good bit of, you know, silent and true moments that would really resonate with um, my followers and then myself. And then I added that text along, you know, telling the story of what happened that day and, you know, not expecting for that post itself to go viral. And, you know, when it did, I think it just honestly just set off another, you know, firestorm of what what other areas were experiencing. But I think Atlanta is unique just because of the um, black population that's here. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, unfortunately, you know, we had our own situation um, with, um, gosh, Richard so Brooks. thank you. It, the, I was like, the name is there. I said, it's the R. <laughs> but with Richard Brooks, you know, we had that that situation as well. So 
you know, being amongst people who look like me and understand the the aspect of what happened in Minneapolis and then connecting it to Atlanta, I think that's what made our position definitely much more unique than most. And and I would agree with that understanding. Like, you know, obviously we are, you know, hundreds, maybe thousand uh, thousand miles away from the Twin Cities. But right. even before Rayshard Brooks, there was a very, as there always seems to be, uh, mm-hmm. you know, during these situations, Atlanta mm-hmm. becomes an epicenter because it of its history and because of its mm-hmm. currency and its and its mm-hmm. and its current population. Um, mm-hmm. I'm curious for you. You mentioned again, this is your first protest, and you're going out there to do a job, but surely there are emotions. The you're you're going through things personally, being out there, especially as a black woman. How did you? Or did you, period, have to separate how you were feeling inside versus what you were trying to do with your camera? That's a good question. Um, I didn't separate myself from that. Um, that would be, a, a to me, it would be a dishonest feeling to be completely oblivious of what is going on in my community. Whether, you know... Though that time I was not on assignment, I would, you know, I would feel like I wouldn't be honest with myself if I didn't connect with those that were out there. Um, As I've said to you before, you know, especially being from Alabama and moving just, you know, two hours away from home, I don't think that I've seen anything that has changed. And what I mean by that is that the same thing that happened, you know, in Atlanta, has happened in Birmingham, has happened in Minneapolis, has happened in other major cities. So I I just can't separate myself from such things that I know could possibly not only happen to family members, but could happen to me. So there's there's always going to be an emotion that's attached to it, just because those are those are my people that I'm seeing, you know, very heinous things happen to. So my emotions are always going to be attached to something like this. You said that you posted that photo uh, of the protester and it went viral. Did it go viral off of your post or from an outlet that had posted it separately? It went it went viral from my post. And, you know, I, I of course, we don't know how things go viral. At least I don't, because that was the first time that anything like that had happened. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but I, I just I just noticed that, you know, as things progressed overnight, because, I you know, I'm I'm one of those folks that post on Instagram and then I'm done. I'll walk away from it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just, you know, just hoping that someone or maybe a few will see the story. And then one that particular photo kept being shared and reshared. And then I'm starting to see my followers, you know, increase by the thousands. And a week later, after just posting that one photo, I'd gone from around 38, 3,900 followers to over 10,000. So wow. that, that just let me know that okay, if this is happening, then there's a bigger responsibility now. So I I also started sharing, you know, other incidents that occurred in Atlanta that were similar to what happened to um, um, in Minneapolis with George Floyd. So it, I, I think it just brought home to a lot of people that they just finally realized that, oh, this is not a one-off incident. Let me tell you mm-hmm. about some other things that happened in Atlanta Birmingham, you know, just 
other places that have that have experienced these same activities that you may not be aware of. So that's where I feel like my responsibility responsibility came in. Um, and also just to remind people that um, some of the photographers who are gaining like this new traction, we've been doing this work for quite some time. So why not just be able to educate you on not only the stories that we photograph, but ourselves as well. So that was like the bigger responsibility of understanding this newfound community and followers that I have now. That's so interesting. And, and I think there's obviously such a balance there, right? Because you don't make any mm -hmm. money because, you know, when you post a photo to Instagram, you don't make any money off that photo necessarily. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously there are so many outlets that you work with and have great relationships with. But I have to imagine that that photo meant more and probably went further in terms of its spread because it was you who was posting it and not the New York Times official account or the Washington yeah. Post. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure it did. Um, you know, that to see another um, impactful black woman that honestly, you know, I just saw it in the corner of my eye and, you know, took a few and walked away, not even thinking that this would be okay. All right. This is the photo of the year or whatever. I'm not, I'm, I'm never in that train of thought. I see it. I photograph it. It must, you know, do something for me and that's it. But I'm not, I'm, I'm not here to gain anything from it other than a sense of telling the stories of what's going on. That, that is the only reason that I really enjoy being a photographer because, um, I, I I don't know any other way that I would feel um, capturing moments like this, like to 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 be able to make photographs. And honestly, I don't have to say a word about it, but someone feels something from it. That is the most gratifying part of what I do. Beautiful. This is the Telling the Story podcast. I'm Matt Pearl. She is Lindsay Weatherspoon, fantastic photojournalist who has worked with many of those outlets I just named, the New York Times, Washington Post, NPR, ESPN, and down the line. Lindsay, uh, so we go from, you know, these incredibly volatile and visual events mm -hmm. to election season, where mm -hmm. suddenly you're doing, at least from what I saw, more portrait work. And and if not portraits, then candidates of individual candidates in, you know, at at their campaign rallies or, mm -hmm. you know, but you are you're essentially doing these individual portraits. How does that change what you're doing when you know that you are you're trying to capture one individual? And again, that photograph has has to speak volumes without you mm -hmm. saying a word. Mm -hmm. um, I usually take in the atmosphere first. Um, I, I feel like a lot of us as photographers just want to get the shot without understanding where we are standing at the moment. Um, and I have to say, I, I appreciate <laughs> the times of sitting in Walmart with my grandmother and people watching <laughs> because it, it gives me a, a whole new sense of why I do it. So I'm, I'm looking around just to see who, you know, my main uh, person that I'm photographing is talking to or interacting with or what they're doing because those small little nuances may make a difference in what the, the whole story is about. So before I even, you know, consider taking a picture, I'm taking in the environment. And then in that sense, it allows me to know who else besides my main person is important. 
So for example, there's um, you know, this photo that I've, I've photographed of um, Reverend Warnock and also with um, Andrew Young. Had I not just looked around as to what was going on, I wouldn't even know that Andrew Young was there. But when you mm. see crowds of people just following somebody, I'm like, who is that? Tell me who it is. Of course, I know who Andrew Young is, but if I'm just somebody that's new to some of these people, I have to pay attention because I don't, I, I personally don't know every politician that is here, but I know if someone is following somebody, they must have a big deal that's going on. So, <laughs> you know, all in all, listening and watching is just as important as making the photograph. So that's pretty much how I, um, you know, I approached everything that I did from, from Reverend Warnock to our now Vice President Kamala Harris to uh, John Ossoff to Kelly Leffler, um, um, you know, former Vice President uh, Mike Pence as well. I photographed him for, um, for uh, who was it? It was Reuters. So all of these people, you just have to understand that um, pretty much just follow the crowd. Follow the crowd first. <laughs> And then, <laughs> and then make your photographs. That's a really good piece of advice, I think, for video journalists as well. It's something we talk about mm -hmm. a lot where, you know, a lot of times we get to a scene, whether it's a, a breaking news or just any story. And especially given the deadlines we're all under, we want to just press record and start going. Right, and right. sometimes it's just a good idea to take a minute, take two minutes and see actually what's going on and what are the mm -hmm. perishable moments uh, mm -hmm. You know, what are the moments that might not be there in a few minutes? And, and exactly, you know, so I, I think that's really, really good advice, no matter what you're doing in this business. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. One of the things that has stood out to me in following your work and following your Instagram feed are just the really beautiful and dignified portraits of not just the candidates, but people like Stacey Abrams, who has been a, a you know, political candidate before and may well be again, right. but you did something similar with the CEO of the New Georgia Project, uh, mm -hmm. which was responsible for the huge increase in young voter turnout and black voter turnout in Georgia these last two elections. And I think there is something to the dignity that you bring to your work. And I'm curious as to the intention behind that, how you how you make that happen and how you, again, execute that with your camera. Well, I appreciate that that compliment because that is the ultimate goal with anyone's um, portrait. And you know what what I was doing as far as Stacey Abrams and um, Inse Umfolt, who is the you know the CEO of New Georgia Project, that helped with you know um, getting the word out about voting and voter suppression and things of that nature is knowing that this work is very um, tiring and often thankless. And when I know this going in, it makes me understand that these are the people that we should be showcasing often. Um, the people behind the scenes, the people you may see all of the time, but I don't, I, I, I want to make sure that I, I have them as these, you know, upright, upstanding people who have done much more than you probably realize. So, you know, going into these these moments of, of history among their own right, um, just as I said earlier about taking the time to, to listen, it's the same thing. I'm listening before I even, you know, make that photograph because there may be something that they say 
that sticks with me and I wanted to show in their photograph. So, you know, with you saying dignity, it, it is definitely part of my own, you know, photography uh, manifesto. It's mm. just making sure that there is dignity with anyone that I photograph. And, and I wanted to zero in on Stacey Abrams specifically. And, and so many of the images of her that would be published would often be in the middle of her making a speech. Uh, you know, it would be, uh, you know, it, it would be impassioned. It would be, mm-hmm. you know, her mouth would be open. It wasn't always the most dignified of her. And then the yeah. other images that I would always see of her were, to be frank, racist cartoons mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. would be online and on social media. And and, mm-hmm. and so often... And again, no matter what you think of Stacey Abrams, she has accomplished right. a, a great deal in her career she has. And, <laughs> and deserves way better than that. So, you know, I would imagine that especially when it comes time to to do a portrait of someone like her, that that dignity becomes even more important to showcase to the world. You are exactly right. You, I couldn't say it any better than what you did. And not only that, it's exciting to meet somebody that that's has this international profile, and you're like, oh my god, it's Stacey Abrams. Like, how am I going to do this? I got to make sure that it's perfect. But you know, with with the way that things are going now, especially around COVID, you know, the the first thing we think about is safety. Second thing we think about is making a person comfortable, and then we have to. I, I know I have to do this just as a photographer that I have to throw out all of the ideas or all of the photos that I've seen of, you know, this person, more specifically Stacey Abrams, and just create a portrait that's close to me, close to how I actually picture people. And that's pretty much how I went in with it. And um, I'm, I'm glad that it, it, it shows. This is the Telling the Story podcast. I'm Matt Pearl. She is Lindsay Weatherspoon, acclaimed photographer based right here in the city of Atlanta. Uh, Lindsay, this final section is specifically aimed at young journalists getting started in their careers, and I, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions in the brief time we have left, but there was a, something I read that really uh, stuck, in, stuck to my heart, which was that your first camera was a gift from your mom, and that you learned so much from her. And the reason it stuck in my heart specifically was because I just bought my two-year-old her own little kids camera. And there was like, you know, it's a, it's a silly little kids camera with filters and all this stuff, but there was something special about like knowing that this is what I do for a living and putting some piece of that into her hands. And I'm curious, you know, I would imagine and hearing what you've said about your mom, that there is, there was that kind of feeling there between her and you. Yeah, it it was and still is. You know, it was. It, it feels like it's a passing of the torch, and in in these moments, I definitely think about her because I'm just wondering, like, what would her perspective be on what I'm doing now? Um, you know, your a parent is always going to be concerned about their their child's um, livelihood, and especially becoming a photographer or any anyone that's in a creative field and jumping out and just doing it on your own and you're not connected to, let's say, an NBC or an NPR, things of that nature. You're just completely jumping out there and seeing if it'll actually, you know, happen. And now that it's happening, it just, 
I don't know, it makes it makes these moments much more impactful. Um, she she's my first photography teacher. We actually had the same photography teacher when we were, you know, in college during our, our separate time. So the connection and the bond that we had around photography is one that lets me know that I'm in this field for a reason and I don't see myself going anywhere anytime soon. <laughs> well, that's great to hear. I know uh, you, obviously your profile has risen greatly in this last year. And one of the cool things that you got to do was judge a photo competition by Reuters, uh, specifically about COVID-19 related photos. Mm-hmm. And the people who entered were submitting work that documented the human effects of the pandemic. So I wanted to ask you about that because I think, and again, we have a lot of video journalist listeners too, given that that's yeah. my background and, and where so many of our guests uh, are from. And I think this applies to all of us who capture footage or photos. Mm-hmm. When you judge something like that, when you mm-hmm. are a simple viewer, mm-hmm. what are the things that stand out to you? What gets your attention? Hmm. You're asking some really great questions, man. Like this is <laughs> I try. <laughs> you really are. I know, and you know that I guess that of course that is part of our jobs. We have to ask those really intriguing questions. And I really appreciate it. Um, but you know, being the viewer, it, it definitely took on another side of my brain because of course you're the creator. And um I had to step outside of that for a second. So when I'm looking at photos, I'm definitely looking at the visual storytelling more than anything else. Because we can create these, you know, captivating images, but I need to understand what is the depth of it. You can make anybody pretty. You can make anybody, um, you know, pretty substantial. But if I don't feel like there's a storyline there, then the the honestly the photo is lost on me. So I always go on with with the mind of what are we really trying to tell with this photo. You know, most of the photos had their captions connected to it. And if it was, you know, if it resonated well, then I understood it. But if I didn't have that caption, what did I feel and what did I potentially take from it? So visual storytelling, as both of us do, is is the part that I that sticks out most when I um, when I'm judging photos. What What were the things that you learned as you know, really early in your career, maybe even in college or maybe even from your mother? that Mm -hmm. you find still are guideposts and foundations for the way that you operate? Ah, so I, what I'm about to tell you, I didn't learn so much in my journalism classes, but more so in my communication studies classes. Hmm. And that's to always know the difference between listening and hearing. I can hear anything you may say, but am I truly listening to your inflection the specific words you're using, the stories that you're telling, and so on and so forth. So just pretty much value listening over simply hearing. I like that. And again, that that makes so much sense uh, because sometimes what we're doing, is all we can do is hear because we're just Mm -hmm. processing so quickly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's so important to take those steps back and to listen. It's really, really important. I wanted to ask you about your role in representation. I think it's Mm -hmm. obvious to anyone listening by now, but there is significant intention, not just in the assignments you take, but also the voices that you choose to amplify. The third word Mm -hmm. on your Instagram bio is the hashtag queer black girl. 
You've <laughs> spoken at the MPPA's Women in Visual Journalism Conference. You're constantly retweeting and elevating and celebrating black voices in photojournalism. And I think, A, that's obviously terrific and necessary. Mm-hmm. The reason I bring it up now is because I think so many aspiring journalists often feel like, you know, I want to do that. I want to represent mm-hmm. my community or or any underrepresented community, mm-hmm. underrepresented community. I want to amplify. But, you know, I'm still trying to get my own foot in the door. I'm trying to, yeah. you know, get my own sense of who I am and, and get paid for doing what I love. Mm-hmm. So my question to you, what can journalists who may think they don't have that much clout yet still do to spread their voices and amplify those voices that need to be amplified? I think being honest with who you are and your position in the world um, will help in knowing who and how to amplify certain voices. Um, We understand that over time, there are a lot of minority voices And when I say minority, I mean that by um, gender, I mean that by gender representation, um, whether, you know, there's queerness attached, blackness, whatever other culture that you specifically identify with. If you're stepping out, you are already amplifying a voice that you have, you or someone else may have never heard. So take the time to simply find um, that confidence that you have and understand that you already are taking amongst yourself, amplifying a voice. Um, So just, you know, also be patient. Um, Everybody won't understand the importance of what you're doing, but when they do, then you know that you've pretty much found your purpose. So that confidence and um, understanding that you're already doing something that you feel like is outside of the box, you're already doing it. So just be confident in it. Very cool. All right. Two more things and then we'll sign off. Lindsay, first of all, I love this. This is a new question I've been asking guests on the podcast and it's one of my favorites. What are three pieces of storytelling you have seen, read, heard, or watched in the last year that are influencing your work that you've really admired that are now influencing your own style? Oh, wow. So, I am honestly catching up on life because I didn't watch TV all of last year. But what? <laughs> Thank goodness. What, yeah, I'm just like, I, I know what's out, but it was so much that came out. But for me, um, I actually watched um, All In. It's about, it's pretty much a, a movie, a, a documentary about Stacey Abrams' trek into becoming governor. And, you know, watching it pretty much just reminded me of everything that I captured over the past two years. So I would say All In, which is on Amazon Prime. Um, I The current book that I'm reading is called Decolonizing the Camera, Photography in Racial Time. Now, it reads like a textbook, but the, the book is just so dense with information that is really guiding my creative um mind and eye on how to make sure that I'm not walking into, um, you know, tropes of how I'm photographing certain people, even my own community. So mm-hmm. that has been helpful. And um, those are the only two things I can think of. But oh, yeah, okay. and, uh, you know, and, and, a, and a lot of podcasts. So just just different podcasts, um, whether it's about pop culture, 
or um, just black history stuff. So yeah, that those are the three things that I, I did that, that has kept me inspired. <laughs> there we go. I love it. All right, Lindsay, I always like to end with that famous reporter's question. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you wanted to add? Not exactly, but I, well, you know what? Let me take that back. Yes. I want to just repeat what I said earlier about confidence. You know, make make sure that whatever story that you're walking into, that you have confidently done your research and your homework and always make sure that you're listening rather than just simply hearing. And that's all. All right. Lindsay Weatherspoon, thanks so much for joining me on the Telling the Story podcast. Thank you. I appreciate you. And the Telling the Story blog updates every Wednesday. The website is tellingthestoryblog.com. Rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher Smart Radio. And check out my book, The Solo Video Journalist, second edition. Thank you to Jazar for the theme music. Thanks to Lindsay Weatherspoon for joining me as my guest. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Telling the Story podcast. We'll see you next time. 